Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Well, first and foremost, follow the instructions in your ballot packet. So when you're, if you request a mail ballot, and I would also say do it early if you want to do that, I would sign up today. I don't know how to gauge my level of worry in this context. I I feel like I'm at a, you know, highest alert um, constantly these days. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I am here today with Ian Milheiser. He's a senior correspondent at Vox, and he is the host of the By the People special series, uh, which is all about democracy and voting rights that's running here in The Weeds feed. Uh, Hi, Ian. What's going on? It's good to be here. Thanks so much, Matt. We're going to have the second episode of the series coming up soon. So what's going on so this was always going to be a really difficult election. We've got a lot of people who are going to be voting in unfamiliar ways. You know, people just aren't used to voting absentee, or at least many people are not. Um, and especially with Justice Ginsburg's death, we can't count on the courts to protect our voting rights. And so I wanted to make sure that everyone has as many tools as they can have to ensure that their ballot is counted. And that's what this episode is going to be about. It's how in this pandemic, with all of these challenges, you can make sure that you have done everything you can to ensure that that ballot gets counted. There you go. Not afraid to be servicey. Um, this is really important, you know, knowledge, information. It's interesting, but it's also it's news you can use uh, to, you know, protect your vote, protect your rights, protect, uh, frankly, democracy. Um, so everybody, check it out. I think you can learn a lot and uh, enjoy. My first guest is Sophia Lynn Lakin. Sophia is a voting rights lawyer with the ACLU, and she's one of the many people working in the trenches to make sure it is as easy as possible to vote in the election. This is a fairly wide-ranging discussion. We talk about voting rights in a world without Justice Ginsburg. We talk about fears that the post office won't deliver ballots on time. And we talk about the handful of states where it's just too hard to vote. But despite all of that, I came out of this conversation feeling a little more optimistic about this election. My biggest takeaway from this conversation is that in the vast majority of states, judges, voting rights lawyers, and election officials are doing everything they can to make sure that your ballot will be counted. And in nearly all of the country, they're succeeding. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sophia Lynn Lakin. Sophia Lynn Lakin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So when we originally scheduled this podcast, um, this episode was going to focus on COVID and its impact on the election. We're, we're still going to get to that. But we're also recording this a few days after Justice Ginsburg's death. And so I, I feel like we need to acknowledge that. And I, I have a few questions about what you think that means. Um, one immediate consequence is that Trump is likely to fill that vacancy, and that would mean a six to three Republican court. So in that reality, what do you think happens to voting rights? Well, I f- first want to say that it's uh, obviously completely devastating for the country, um, for obviously people within the ACLU family from which she came um, and for uh, civil rights and civil liberties, I think much more broadly, um, for whom she was such a great defender. The 
specific case of voting rights is interesting. I've been sort of thinking about this a bit over the weekend. And I think the reality is, for better or for worse, that unfortunately, when it comes to voting rights, while Justice Ginsburg was um, such a forceful voice, unfortunately, that voice very frequently came from her dissents in these cases. Um, when it came to voting rights, there were very few victories, I, I would say, overall in the, in the last many, many years. Um, and, and so while we lose a powerful voice on the side of you know, explaining just where the majority of the court has gotten it wrong time and time and time again, including in Shelby County v. Holder, that case itself, we perhaps don't see a huge difference in, in the daily sort of grind of the cases that come before the court in the voting sphere. Um, obviously, a 6-3 hurdle is a harder hurdle to overcome in any given case. So uh, I think it does make our, our, our job in terms of persuading the justices in those really, really, really obvious cases, I would say, um, that much more difficult. I want to drill down on one case in particular, and th this is because this is a case where um, actually it was the ACLU that managed to win a, an important victory for voting rights. Uh, this is uh, Department of Commerce v. New York, the census case. And, you know, you can go into more detail. But my understanding of that case is that the Trump administration wanted to add a citizenship question to the census. And there was considerable evidence that the reason they wanted to do that is because if they did, they knew a lot of immigrants and people from immigrant communities wouldn't respond and it would skew the census towards white Republicans. And what the Supreme Court essentially said is they said that the Trump administration lied about why they were doing that. And you can't lie that way. At the very least, there, there, there is a prohibition of, uh, against lying there. But there are four justices in dissent. So what happens if there are now five justices who say that the administration can not only implement a policy that seems intended to manipulate the electorate, but then lie about why they're doing it? Well, I think obviously that's extremely troubling. Um, the good news is, is we're not precisely in that position again. I know there's um, a new census case, I would say many, many new census cases, <laughs> uh, including one involving some of the same players uh, that we were involved with here in New York. Um, but I would say the question that we're dealing with here right now, I would uh, suggest is, is much clearer potentially than, uh, than what was before the court the last time around in that, you know, person is a person and there isn't really a, a way to get around very clear language that every person should be counted. Just to clarify real quick, this is the case where Trump wants to not count undocumented immigrants. And the Constitution says that all persons should be counted, not all citizens. That's correct. Right. That's correct. The um, sort of an executive policy uh, aimed at, at at excluding those individuals from the actual apportionment count um, given to states to to be able to redistrict. And so that's obviously obviously would have very very drastic uh, outcomes in in very in particular states, especially, but across the board when it comes to how many. Congress people you have representing your state, how many, how much funding there is for particular communities and so forth. Same issues in many ways as what we were dealing with, with respect to the citizenship question. But, um, but I would say in many ways, a, a clearer question and one which much less deferential to the agency like we were dealing with, with respect to the Census Bureau in the last time around. So, you know, we have uh, persuaded that three-court panel that we were in front of um, just a couple weeks ago uh, before in the Second Circuit saw that very clearly and ruled in our favor pretty pretty decisively. Um, yes, the, the, the administration has appealed this case both to the Second Circuit as well as to the Supreme Court, but like I said, I think it's a much cleaner question and um, I'm optimistic that even with the balance of power that the court will understand that. So let's let's bring COVID into this now. Um, and I want to stay on the topic of the census for just a moment. So normally the way that the census works is that there's a form that's sent out this year. It's mostly online. People fill it out. And then there's door knockers and there's in-person contact that's supposed to make sure that as many people are counted as they're counted. And that's a lot harder during a pandemic. And we have a president who's already been caught trying to manipulate the census once. 
So if we get the census numbers back and they just don't make sense, it's clear that because of the pandemic or because of the president's manipulations or whatever, that a lot of people just weren't counted. Is there any legal recourse? I would say that this is something that we are thinking about and that we are looking into, but it is uncharted territory in many ways, as as is so many things that we have dealt with under the Trump administration and during this these really unprecedented times. Um, I would I would um, be surprised if there weren't challenges in both directions, one way or the other, um, if if it becomes clear that the data is problematic. There's still a, a chance that we can get this right, uh, but the window is obviously closing really rapidly. And, and whoever is listening, make sure you're responding to the census and responding to, to those door knockers who are going around. I have seen them on the street uh, and thank them for their service. Uh, that's extremely important to do and, and make sure that everyone you know responds as well. Everyone fill out your census form. And remember, it is online this year, so it's easy. Let's talk about the post office now. Um, and this is, you know, another one of those things that I think if we had an ordinary president, we wouldn't even be discussing. But there's at least a lot of concerns that the post office has slowed down mail. There's some concerns that it may not be able to deliver everyone's absentee ballot accurately or, or quickly enough, I should say. Three or four months ago, the advice I heard from pretty much every voting expert that I talked to is vote by mail is the safest, best option in a pandemic. It means that you don't have to interact with people. Um, and so that's what you should do. Is that still good advice, you think, given what we now know about the post office? I would say that it depends. First, I would I would I would say that the vast majority of people who work at the post office are trying to do their jobs trying to get the mail done, and they're doing a great job day in and day out. The problem is, of course, that they're, they should be getting more resources to do a better job, mm -hmm. uh, given the unprecedented amounts of mail, and that we have political shenanigans happening that is making their job difficult. But, you know, we're still a little ways out from the election. Uh, absentee ballots in some places have started going out, but not in every place. Um, I think that there is still time, if you want to vote by mail, to do so. Um, and feel comfortable about the fact that it will get you will get your ballot and you will be able to return that ballot in time. And if that feels the most comfortable way and the safest way for you to participate, then I would recommend strongly that you do that so that you can vote and that you aren't put in a position where you don't feel comfortable going uh, in person to the polls later in the day. But think ahead, plan ahead, and so forth. As we get closer and closer to the election, I think looking at what the alternatives are uh, is important. A number of states do have early voting, in-person voting, and if you can plan around a time where it's not particularly crowded or or likely to be busy, that's an option. Thinking about alternative ways to drop off your ballot as well is extremely important and something we have been litigating um, and, and the Trump administration has been litigating in a number of places, and that involves things like drop boxes that do make it a lot easier to ensure that your ballot gets in the hands of who it needs to get into uh, to be counted uh, directly and immediately and as quickly as possible without having to interact with other people. So those are going to be really great options. And um, I would encourage people who can use drop boxes to do so because that does take um, the pressure off of mail service then. Um, and again, if you are feeling comfortable to voting in person, early in person, again, that takes the pressure off of both the mail service, but also of election day voting for those individuals who, um, for whatever reason, that is the best way, the most important time, um, the time that they are able to vote. So uh, I think that the, the, the lessons are there are a lot of options now and that people should really think through all of them and take advantage of the ones that make sense to do at that period of time and given their particular circumstances. Um, because different states have different options too, like, for example, drop boxes, um, you, it would, people should really think about that and look into whether those options exist. Um, I know the ACLU has been rolling out uh, a Let People Vote campaign that is an educational tool for, for a vote by mail resources specifically. But there are, um, of course, a number of different organizations that are doing similar things for um, 
either state by state or within a particular state and so forth. So there's a lot of educational resources out there that voters should should use. But uh, I agree that to a certain extent, the one line mantra of just vote by mail, um, if you can, uh, perhaps needs to be tweaked a little bit, um, especially as we get closer and closer to the election. Is there a website you can share for the ACLU project that you mentioned? Sure. I, it's um, aclu.org slash voter, and that will get you to pretty much all the information that we have there, including information about the, the different lawsuits that we have brought and, and still have going on related to COVID. Great. And, and I'll add to what you said about early in-person voting. I already voted. Um, my state of Virginia has a long early voting period. It took me 15 minutes. There were plexiglass barriers between me and the poll workers so that we could feel safe during the pandemic. And it was super easy. So if, if you live in a state where early in-person voting is an option, uh, you know, it's something that can be done quickly and at least in my county is being done in what looks like a very safe way. So I want to preface my next question by pointing out that historically voting by mail hasn't benefited either party. All the data I've seen suggests that it's, you know, both parties use it. Um, But for this election, There's a lot of evidence that Biden voters are more likely to vote by mail than Trump voters. There's some poll data showing that Biden voters are four or five times more likely to vote. And some of that might be because Trump has been attacking vote by mail. And so his voters listen to him. So how worried are you about a situation where red state governors or election officials target mailed in ballots, you know, try to prevent them from being counted on the theory that if they target those ballots, they're more likely to target Democrats. So I don't know how to gauge my level of worry (laughs) in this context. I I feel like I'm at a, you know, highest alert um, constantly these days. Uh, I don't know how much We've looked specifically at Republicans versus Democrats here. However, I will say that many people are focused on the same places in this upcoming election. Right. And uh, it would be uh, potentially silly of us not to also be paying close attention to places where there may be more shenanigans than others. Um, but it is something that we are we are worried about, that we are thinking about among other issues uh, as we start looking forward past you know all the litigation that we've been doing in terms of trying to set the rules of the game pre-election and thinking about uh, what might happen post or election night I would say right. or post election and and the issues surrounding uh, you know what ballots get counted and and under what circumstances and so forth is obviously something that we are preparing for and we're looking at very closely. So one scenario that I hear thrown around a lot is that on election night itself, the in-person ballots are counted fast. And so those and those in-person tallies show Donald Trump with a lead. And then over the next few days, as the mail-in ballots come in, the race shifts towards Biden. And and Biden is the legitimate winner, but he's the legitimate winner because of these ballots that are counted later than others. And so Trump declares victory on the first night and he declares these new ballots that come in illegitimate. Um, So I guess I have two questions about that scenario. One is how realistic do you think it is? And then the second is what should, you know, not just people like you who are lawyers, who are voting right lawyers, people like me who are in the media, what can be done to address that scenario? So the first question about how realistic we're living in a world where, you know, of things that I thought were not possible to be to be thought of, uh, despite all, every urging um, is, is possible. I certainly think it is possible. And I think, unfortunately, um, the, the way that Trump has talked about the election this year in 2016 uh, demonstrates that there's no thought about being responsible um, to the democracy, to the integrity of the election system, to ensuring that people have confidence in that system. And uh, that means, uh, unfortunately, that um, a number of statements that could undermine people's confidence 
in election results and 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 sort of insert chaos into people's understanding of what is going on is something that should be probably expected whether it takes this particular form not sure but it doesn't seem so far off in the in the realm of possibilities um, in terms of what people can do, this is a tricky one because uh, it's not really something I think voting lawyers can do much around. Um, these are sort of public statements about uh, about um, maybe irresponsible ones, but nothing necessarily is happening untoward within the election counting. But you know, obviously, we've we've said very clearly many many times that it's going to be election week probably that. Um, people in the media need to be very responsible about what they do with comments like the president's. If that happens, um, they need to be responsible about explaining the fact that it's unlikely you're going to have election results um, on election night unless it's wildly clear and there are no outstanding ballots that could change those results and so forth. Um, but I think people, the citizens themselves, as they're voting, need to be conscious of that as well and not um, sort of feed into the frenzy of the election night by sort of reiterating news or rumors or these kinds of things irresponsibly themselves and in the world of retweeting and liking and reposting and resharing um I, I think every individual citizen has their responsibility to be responsible with information right now and that seems to be one of the biggest issues across the board with uh, the election coming up and i imagine in the days to follow so let's drill down into what's actually happening in the states right now, because like we don't really have a federal election in this country. We have 50 different state elections. And, you know, six months ago, you know, go figure. Most states weren't anticipating a once in a century pandemic when they wrote their election laws. And so you had a lot of states where it was clear that their laws weren't suitable to this emergency. You know, you had states, for example, where it was very hard to obtain an absentee ballot. Um, you had to give an excuse to obtain one. And, well, I'm afraid of getting COVID wasn't a valid excuse. So I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, states have now seen this problem coming for about half a year. They've had time to adapt their laws. And how well do you think, and I'm sure the answer to this is going to be some states are better than others, but how well have states adapted their election procedures um, with, you know, this pandemic in mind? Well, you're precisely right that some states are more prepared <laughs> than, than others. Um, obviously, some were already in a situation where their laws were, uh, you know, all st states that vote mostly by mail are, are largely um, uh feeling like they are sitting pretty relative to other states that are for the first time um, kind of preparing themselves, embracing themselves for a, a particularly large influx of mail ballots. Now, we've had a few elections in some of these places as well. So there's been there have been a few trial runs for, for the states to kind of see what that looks like. Um, so I'm I'm hopeful there that that there are constantly more and more adjustments being made. For example, um, even getting larger outdoor spaces for uh, in-person voting, whether it be early or on election day, kind of set up through sports arenas and so forth, and um, other festival sites and things like that. So people are being creative and innovative across the board, um, as even even outside the, the concept of of mail voting. Um, on, on, on top of that, you know, there were already, fortunately, about 30, depending on how you count Virginia, 34 <laughs> states that have on their books uh, no excuse voting by mail. You don't need an excuse to vote by mail. People can just do it if they, if they would like to. And since then, um, that the number of outstanding states that haven't adopted that, at least for during the pandemic, has whittled down to five um, South Carolina just um, just announced that they were going to have no excuse to vote by mail um, um, for the November election. So they joined that group, and so that is that is pretty good, I would say. Uh, of those remaining sixteen states, and that didn't have that kind of situation, sort of adjusting in that world to that. Um, in addition, you've got a number of states that have done things like suspend. Uh, secondary requirements like witness requirements or identif identification requirements uh, that would have required voters to break confinement if they were trying to keep themselves safe at home in order to be able to cast that mail-in ballot and sort of defeat the purpose of the mail-in ballot in the first instance. 
And we brought a number of suits to, to, to address that. We still have a couple that are outstanding. Um, in a number of states, the states uh, agreed of ultimately that that was the right course. So um, uh, those were resolved to a certain extent through uh, consent decrees just ordered by the court. A few are still ongoing. Um, the unfortunate side of it is that there are, of course, a, f a, a number of states that just have refused to, to adopt what we would think are common sense solutions. Um, Texas, uh, Mississippi now, Tennessee, uh, some of these places, they've, they've broadened their conception, perhaps, of what their existing excuses cover to cover perhaps those individuals who are most at risk, but ultimately remain still pretty limited uh, option for voters in those states overall. Now, there are some innovative things trying to be happening at the local level in some of these places, but on a statewide basis, um, you know, it's it's troubling that there haven't been more attempts to uh, create alternatives for voters, because I think, as I mentioned earlier, these alternatives are really are what going to be key. No particular form of voting, I think, is going to be the answer for every single voter. The, the reality is that voters need a lot of options. Elections officials need a lot of options and people need to sort of spread themselves out across the board for this to go as smoothly as possible. So Texas has an unusual law which says that if you're over the age of 65, you're allowed to get an absentee ballot. But if you're under the age of 65, I mean, th you might have a different excuse, but most people under the age of 65 can't get one. And the Constitution has some pretty clear provisions about age discrimination in voting. So why is Texas able to get away with this? Uh, unfortunately, courts don't you know, agree that, that um, at least under the cir current circumstances, that that divide between individuals who are 65 and over and those that are younger is a is a particular burden i would say on on the on the part of voters who are under 65 it's kind of odd because it's um it's not as if under covid for example if you're 64 and perhaps have some you know minor underlying health condition like hypertension that you are somehow that much less at risk than some person who is 65. However, that is the cutoff that is put in place. And the, the answer that is typically given in that scenario by the states, by the courts, is that, look, you can just go vote in person. You're not being deprived of, of any particular right here. So the state can make whatever kind of adjustments it wants to, any type of restrictions it wants to in the world of absentee voting or mail voting, because we haven't restricted your your franchise in any particular way. We, of course, and I think many, many people uh, think that that is a wild understanding of what it means to be voting right now um, and how your right to vote can be impacted and what um, that burden entails in a once in a century pandemic. But that is unfortunately how um, the state is currently getting away with it with the blessings, unfortunately, both the state courts and the federal courts um, that that uh, are in the circuit for that Texas in the circuit of. So which other states are you worried about in this election and, and why? Well, I'm worried about different states for different reasons, I would say. Um, there are, uh, of course, the states that aren't opening up their alternatives in the manner that we just discussed, um, including Texas, Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana, and so forth. Um, Indiana being another one that opened it up during the primaries, but refused to do so uh, for the upcoming general election. But, but I think that I'm obviously worried about states where we constantly see uh, very close elections, especially at the presidential level in a presidential year, and where we often see concerns around precisely what is happening at, with the counting of ballots and, uh, and uh, problems at the polls with lines and that kind of a thing. They sort of go hand in hand, unfortunately. So places like Wisconsin, places like Maricopa County, Arizona, where we are constantly seeing issues kind of time and time again. Pennsylvania, um, I think the fact that you see as many lawsuits as you see just in that one state is a telling sign of, um, you know, 
people are going to be scrutinizing everything that is happening on both sides. And that um, makes for, I would say, uh, potential for just a lot of last minute kind of shenanigans on both ends. Great. So one last question, and this is the question that I'm ending every episode or every interview with. What is your personal plan to make sure that your vote is counted? So my personal plan right now, I, I live in New York. It is to vote by mail in this election. So I, I've said to, to others during this podcast that I think it's still a good option. Um, I, for myself, think it is a very important option. I, might, I personally am immunocompromised and uh, my father has stage four lung cancer. And the last thing I want to do is introduce any possible risk into the bubble that I live in uh, to keep everyone safe as possible. And for me, that, that is what makes sense and is unfortunately an option for me here in New York. Well, Sophia, thank you so much. This has been a great interview. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thanks again to Sophia Lynn-Lakin. I want to emphasize again one point that Sophia made. In all but five states, every voter will be able to cast an absentee ballot this election. And in all but five or six states, there's some process to cast a ballot early if you choose to. Voters are going to have to work a little harder this election. If you plan to vote absentee, request your ballot now if you haven't already done so. As Sophia mentioned, you can go to aclu.org voter to find out how to receive a, a ballot by mail in your state. After the break, I speak with Amber McReynolds, and I highly recommend this conversation, which has a lot of practical tips about how you can ensure that your vote is counted. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Welcome back. My next guest is Amber McReynolds. Amber is the CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute. She's one of the nation's leading advocates for expanding access to voting by mail. And she's also the former director of elections for Denver, Colorado. In that role, she played a big role in setting up Colorado's vote by mail system, which is really the gold standard for how to run elections so that it is as easy as possible to vote. Colorado is one of nine states, 10 if you count D.C., where voters will automatically receive a ballot in the mail. We spend a lot of time discussing voting by mail and debunking many of the attacks on it, but I want to emphasize some of the things that Amber says at the end of this interview. A lot of us is going to vote in unfamiliar ways this election. 
Millions of people who've never cast a mail-in ballot will do so for the first time. Please, 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 please read the instructions on your ballot very carefully and follow them to the letter. It would be a tragedy if your vote is not counted because you used the wrong color ink or because you didn't sign the ballot in the right place, or because you didn't stick it in a special envelope, or two envelopes, if that's what your state requires. And with that plea out of the way, here's Amber McReynolds. Amber McReynolds, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. So I want to get started by talking about some of your professional experience. Um, Colorado is one of 10 states with a vote-by-mail system, and you oversaw much of Colorado's transition to that system. So walk us through what that means to be a vote-by-mail state. Sure. Well, in Colorado, when we designed our system now seven years ago, uh, we really tried to design a system that put voters first. And what I mean by that is we looked at the entire election process, the transactions that voters engaged in, whether it be registering to vote or the voting process itself, and tried to improve it so that it was easier for voters to engage, more convenient, also more secure, more transparent, all those things. So uh, we, you know, first started with registration, modernized our registration deadlines, automated that process so that now in Colorado, you as a voter, you, your address gets updated automatically, you're registered to vote if you engage with government offices like the DMV. Uh, so there's just a lot of automation on that. Very similarly with mail ballots, mail ballots are also proactively mailed to every elector before each election. So voters don't have to kind of guess or fill out additional paperwork or sign up to do that. It comes automatically, so it's predictable. And then finally, in in in-person voting, you still, as a voter getting a ballot at home, you still have multiple ways to return your voted mail ballot. And you can also still vote in person if you'd like to do that. And we've also made that more convenient. So we created what's called vote centers, and they're available during the early voting period, as well as on election day. And a vote center just means that you can go to any vote center, not just the assigned government polling location on one day to vote. And so it's a lot more convenient and it gives voters many more options than what they had in the previous model. So I want to drill down on some of the criticisms of this system. And probably the biggest critic is President Trump. He has claimed that there is, quote, tremendous potential for voter fraud in a vote by mail system. So let's confront that claim head on. You know, how much fraud do we see in a vote by mail system? Well, voter fraud generally in the entire election process is exceedingly rare. That's been proven. We know that for, you know, 20 years of data. We also know that hundreds of millions of ballots have been cast going back about 200 years. Vote by mail has been in existence since the Civil War. It's been primarily used by our military voters and voters serving overseas. Uh, So the claims just are not true. What I will say, though, is that with our election process, whether it be in-person voting or vote by mail, we must have the ability to deter, detect, and hold bad actors accountable, whether they're spewing misinformation about the election process or whether they're trying to interfere with voters engaging in the process. We need to hold those individuals accountable if they, should they try to do that. And more often than not, we don't see this sort of individual voters trying to commit a felony and get in trouble and do something wrong. It's more likely that we see bad actors trying to interfere with the voting process or individual voters themselves. And that's you know similar to the case we saw in North Carolina or New Jersey. So my understanding of what happened there is that there are Republican operatives who tampered with people's ballots. You know, the, the concern was that the person who was filling out the ballot wasn't actually the person who was supposed to fill out the ballot. Um, so what went wrong there and, and how can we prevent incidents like that? Yeah, well, North Carolina was an interesting case, really, and it's a good example of what happens when states limit individual options to return ballots or to engage in the process and make the process reliant on other people. So North Carolina first is a state that requires witness signatures. So you as a voter, you can't just vote your ballot on your own. You've got to get a witness uh, to your signature. That means you've got to be reliant on somebody else. North Carolina is also a state, at least at that point, that did not allow ballots to be dropped off beyond 
the clerk's office. So if that clerk's office was an hour away from someone's home, it's going to make it pretty difficult for the voter to turn their ballot in. North Carolina also didn't have a ballot tracking system, which is one of our recommendations for vote-by-mail systems. And so that means that voters, you know, once they turn their ballot in, they don't know when it's been accepted or if everything's okay with it. And what we saw there was we didn't see individual voters doing something wrong. We saw political operatives taking advantage of all of those limitations that I just mentioned, knocking on people's doors, offering to drop off ballots for voters, and they discarded them. They threw them away or they discarded them in some way, uh, which prevented those individual voters from getting their ballot cast successfully. And they didn't know. They didn't know until it was too late uh, to vote. So that's kind of why I say that when we empower individuals with lots of options, we take away the opportunity and the ability for some of these operatives to take advantage of those rules and prevent voters from being able to vote. So what sort of security measures do you see in successful states? You know, how does Colorado make sure that if you send a ballot to Joe Smith, that the person who actually casts that vote will be Joe Smith? Well, there's a couple different security checks in the process. In fact, there's actually more than I could even list and name here. But first and foremost, when we're mailing you a ballot in Colorado, number one, you need to be registered to vote. And that's where, you know, we determine eligibility. Uh, obviously, you have to be a citizen in the in the United States to vote. So that all happens at registration. Your address needs to be current because ballots are not forwardable. So one of the first checks, honestly, is registration and address information because we need to know where you are to get a ballot to you. Uh, so that's a really important feature as a first step. Second big piece that we have now, we have statewide in Colorado and a lot of states have have expanded this year is called ballot tracking. And you don't need a law to change to implement ballot tracking, but it's really a service that allows voters, similar to tracking a package, to track their mail ballot. And that type of system enhances security, adds transparency, gives voters accountability to know where their ballot is throughout the entire process. Uh, And that's something that has benefited Colorado voters in a tremendous way. And now states like California, North Carolina has added it, Nevada, a lot of other states have expanded these options. Um, And then finally, when you get your ballot at home, you have time to research candidates, you can look up judges or ballot issues that you don't know about and fill out your ballot in in the privacy of your home. And then when you turn it back in, we're going to validate signatures. We're going to compare your signature on file to that on the ballot and make a determination in a, with a bipartisan team as to whether or not that's you or not. And if it's not, you're going to be given an opportunity to cure, which does happen, not in great numbers, but it is an, it is something there. But that signature is is a security measure and a security check to catch any bad actors that have tried to do something they shouldn't be doing in the voting process. I'd like to drill down a little bit more on that signature requirement because I hear a lot of criticism of signature requirements from voting rights advocates. Um, I hear two types of criticisms. One is just that sometimes there's a fear that election officials will act in bad faith, that it's easy, it's a subjective determination. And so you might see ballots thrown out because election officials don't want people from certain areas to vote. Um, And then the other concern is just, you know, I might break my right hand shortly before an election and have to sign it with my left hand. So the signature is not going to match, but it's not because I'm not me. There's there's a legitimate reason there. So I like your response to like both of those scenarios. And how do you make sure that you don't have bad faith and that people can still cast a vote even if there's a problem with their signature? Well, first on the process. So there's a couple of things with regards to signature verification. There are software solutions now and, you know, technology and software doesn't care what your party affiliation is or what demographic you might be. It's just looking at a one-to-one match. It's looking at the signature on file to the envelope. And a lot of the large jurisdictions in the country that run vote by mail programs utilize that. And I actually like it because it's more consistent than human beings are. It's just software comparing signatures. Uh, The second piece is when you do, if, if the software can't match it, you obviously have to have a bipartisan team and making sure that the teams reviewing signatures are bipartisan 
or nonpartisan uh, are really, really important because we want to eliminate and mitigate that bias, that inherent bias in the election process as much as possible. Um, and then the training of how this works. And one of the uh, training programs that was developed actually in Denver that's now utilized statewide in Colorado was developed by a handwriting expert from um, uh, the trains law enforcement, and he helped to formulate a training for all judges to go through it and know what to look for and apply consistent standards, all of that. So there's techniques uh, to determine if a signature matches or not. Um, so that's kind of another you know, piece, ensuring the bipartisan teams plus the good training. And then finally, if a signature doesn't match, we never want someone to be disenfranchised simply for a signature not matching or someone breaking their arm. So we wanna make sure we have a really good, uh, straightforward, clear and transparent cure process. So if there is a, you know, if a signature gets flagged, we give voters ample time to cure that. And again, it's a security measure. Explaining that to voters that it is there to protect them and protect their vote is really important. And making sure that election judges and election officials apply those standards consistently is also really important. And we can monitor how those things are done by, you know, for instance, one thing I used to do in Denver was I would literally monitor how, what the acceptance and rejection rate was for every team. And if something didn't look like it should or wasn't benchmarked or wasn't at the baseline that we would expect, we'd have a conversation about training or what that team might be doing that's different. So having to consistently monitor that is really, really important. And that's not necessarily something that every election office has done historically, but it's really important to address the concerns that, that some raise on this topic. Can we talk some about how you ensure that the voter rolls are reliable? You know, people move. And, you know, when I've moved in the past, I haven't always immediately notified the government that I, that I did so. So, like, I guess there's a concern that if I move, my ballot might still go to my old address and whoever has moved into my old address might cast a ballot in my name. How, how do you prevent that? First and foremost, in all the states that mail ballots uh, to voters, they go to active voters. And active means that you have, there's not been a received piece of mail back or a notice from the post office that you've moved. So by, by going to that universe of voters, we're already ensuring that ballots are not going out to everybody in the entire file or what, what have you. Uh, the other thing is, this is actually a, an area where automatic registration and automatic address updates, also a policy choice, is really, really important. Because if we can automate the updating of addresses through government platforms, government services, all of the different data points where you fill out an address change and enter your information over and over and over. If we can automate that process so that it's happening in the back end and you don't have to fill out an additional piece of paperwork, that's what we want to do. And, and we did that in Colorado. We also automated the address update process through the post office in Colorado. So Colorado gets postal data every two weeks on address changes and automatically updates voters' records based on that information. So voters literally don't have to do anything. It just happens automatically. And the states with automatic registration have also streamlined some of this. Uh, and then finally, kind of, you know, beyond just the registration piece, the cross-state sharing of data is really, really important Colorado was one of the founding members of ERIC way back in 2010, I think was the time frame on that. ERIC is a is a multi-state database that allows them to track uh, voter addresses. Yeah, it's a multi-state uh, data sharing network. So mm -hmm. states basically upload their data to ERIC. They do cross comparisons and then they output uh, you know, address changes so states can then send mailers or contact voters that might be new in their state or that have moved away. Uh, so that's really, really important in terms of data integrity. And then what I would finally say is if you think about the states that mail ballots to everyone, so let's just take Colorado, Oregon, Washington, those three states, not only are they three members of ERIC, but they have the cleanest voter registration files in the country. And the primary reason for that is they're constantly checking voters and their addresses by sending ballots, right? So it's interesting because a lot of people argue, well, it's not concern over address changes or that kind of thing, but this model actually encourages more interactions with voters, not less. And that's why those states lead in terms of, of 
you know, high voter registration rates, but also accuracy of data. So I want to pivot to Trump's other criticism, which isn't really a substantive criticism of voter by mail, which is he says that it doesn't work out well for Republicans. Is that true? I mean, do, do are Democrats more likely to vote by mail than Republicans are? No, historically, we've not seen a situation where vote by mail benefits one side or the other. And I will also say that this is that Colorado has the same model that Utah has. So this has been a red, a blue. It's been supported by uh, a cross-partisan group of individuals over time. We see politicians that get elected that are Republicans and politicians that get elected that are Democrats. It doesn't matter uh, and it doesn't negatively impact one side or the other. It frankly just provides a positive impact and a positive access point for every single elector, regardless of their party. So let's talk a bit about the post office. We've seen a slowdown in mail. Um, the, The data I've seen suggests that most mail is still arriving on time, but there's just no guarantee that any individual piece of mail isn't going to be delayed by days or maybe longer than days. Um, so how worried are you that the post office isn't going to be up to the task of this election? Um, and what should voters do to compensate for that? I'm not as concerned as as many have been on this. And primarily it's because I know a lot about the postal s- structure uh, they've been their critical partner in elections beyond vote by mail. So there's a lot of required registration mailings, ballot issue notices, polling place notifications, all of those letters that are actually a much higher volume than vote by mail are mailed through the postal service. So I have a lot of confidence in the post office's number one capacity. They have massive capacity. They on average do 400 million plus pieces of mail a day even if every single voter returned their ballot in the country on one day, all at the same time, it wouldn't even come to half of that. So their capacity is is magnificent. I've also seen some recent data uh, that would suggest that there hasn't been the slowdown that a lot of people uh, kind of, you know, talked about or had anticipated. Um, but what I would also say is that COVID, like it has impacted everything, it's also impacted the Postal Service. So There's been a couple of instances, certain parts of the country where there was a more obvious change in delivery standards, one being a certain part of California. And when we actually looked into it, we found that they had an extraordinary number of COVID cases amongst their staff and they were short, they were short staffed quite significantly. So I think that we have to be really cautious about if it's a, you know, full nationwide problem. Is it isolated? If it's isolated, why is it? Is it COVID related? Because like everything, COVID has had a very difficult impact on many, many, many different aspects of our lives. And the Postal Service is no different. That all makes sense to me. But like, I don't have any good way of investigating whether there are a lot of workers calling in sick to my local post office. Like, like I mean, I, I don't know if I'm one of the people who's going to be impacted by any slowdowns that occur. So what should I do to protect myself to make sure that my ballot will be cast? Yeah, well, I think what's really important is if you're in a state that has ballot tracking, sign up for ballot tracking. If you're in California, Nevada, North Carolina, some jurisdictions in Florida and Ohio, I mean, there's ballot tracking systems now in so many different states. If you're in a state like that, sign up to get ballot tracking. Michigan and Pennsylvania even have versions of ballot tracking now. Um, So sign up for that because you can confirm that your ballot, you know when it's been mailed and you know when it's been received by the election officials. Uh, You can also sign up for informed delivery service through the Postal Service, uh, and that actually gives you tracking over all of your mail. So you know what's on the way to you on a given day, uh, and you can track, you know, your information that's coming to you. So there's actually ways you can also uh, kind of make sure that you're monitoring that. And then what I would say is if you're within eight days of the election, and you haven't mailed your ballot back, you should do so on you know at least eight days out. If you haven't yet, drop off your ballot in person and visit your local election of- officials or your state election officials' websites. You can go through canivote.org, which is managed by the National Association of Secretaries of State. That will give you a breakdown in each state. And just knowing the rules to make sure your ballot arrives on time is absolutely important to be ensuring the ballot is cast in a timely way. Uh, So if you're in a postmark state, 
you've got one set of rules. If you're not in a postmark state, it's good to drop off that ballot no later than election day. So at least early in the pandemic and a lot of the spring primaries, I heard lots of concerns that state election offices hadn't staffed up enough. They, they, they didn't have the staff they needed to send out the absentee ballots. They didn't have enough poll workers to operate precincts on election day. Um, how much of a concern is that? Do you, do you think that, you know, and maybe it differs from state to state, but like have states done a good job of staffing up to get ready for this election? Well, first, what I would say is that it's actually not state election offices that staff up. It's it's the local election officials. So a lot of people kind of think states run elections, but it's it's more the case that it's the localities. And there are over 10,000 different local election offices in the country. 90% of them have five or fewer full-time staff. Uh, they're the ones that hire poll workers. They're the ones that process registrations. They're the ones that do that. So if you, if you are not worried about the pandemic or you have an ability to serve as a poll worker, Worker. That's still a great need across many states uh, right now. And you can contact your local election official to sign up to work in the election. Um, but I think that, that states and localities have particularly focused on this since the pandemic started. So there's heightened interest. They've been able to recruit a lot more people. In fact, in Denver, they don't they have more than they need in terms of poll workers, partly because of the model, but partly because they've had a lot of interest. Uh, so um, you know, I think that states and localities, I have confidence that they're going to be a lot more prepared now for November than they were in the primary session. So a few other questions. Um, a lot of voters are going to be voting in ways that they're not used to voting. And I, I know like sometimes when I do something for the first time, I screw it up. How should voters who may be voting absentee for the first time what steps should they take to make sure that they do it right so that their vote will be counted? Well, first and foremost, follow the instructions in your ballot packet. So when you're, if you request a mail ballot, and I would also say do it early. If you want to do that, I would sign up today. Make sure your address is up to date. And then when your ballot comes to you, make sure you follow the instructions. And in, in the instructions, it will tell you if, you know, if it's an oval and it'll say use black or blue ink, fill in the oval completely. That means use black or blue ink. Don't use purple. Don't use pink. Don't use highlighters. Don't use markers. Use a black or blue pen. Also, if it says fill in the oval, fill in the oval. No reason to circle the candidate's name. No reason to put check marks or, or X's. Fill in the oval if it says fill in the oval. So follow the instructions and then follow the instructions for returning the ballot once you've completed it, including completing that signature affidavit. Make sure you sign it and make sure you fill out any other information on that affidavit that might be required in your state. Um, and then return it, you know, send it back in with the correct postage, uh, send it by the deadline that is required in your state or drop it off in person. Fantastic. And that, that brings us to the last question, which I'm asking every one of my guests. Um, this is something that you already touched on, but what is your personal plan um, to cast your ballot and make sure that it is counted? My personal plan is to vote at home. Uh, I've been voting at home for a long period of time. Uh, I love voting with my kids and I have a seven and nine year old. I love teaching them about the civics process. Uh, when my ballot comes, both of them, you know, they start asking, when are we going to fill out mom's ballot? And they read me the very long ballot. It's, it's three cards, six pages in Denver of ballot issues, judges, candidates. Like it takes me a couple days, honestly, to get through the ballot. Uh, when, they, when they're reading me the names or candidates, they'll say, what is House District 9? Or what does the mayor do? Or what have you? And we go and I show them. I explain that to them. I show them how to look up information online. I show them how to research about judges. Uh, that we might be voting on. And so they see that entire process. And I do that every single election with them and talk about what's on the ballot. And so I'm convinced that I've created two lifelong civically minded community members that care and understand why their votes matter and, and why they matter to the you know overall national conversation, but more importantly, to their local communities. All right. Amber McReynolds, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for joining us. If you like this show, I'll be back next week with an episode about how the United States Constitution itself harms our democracy and what can be done to fix that problem. Also, I want to emphasize one more time, if you haven't already, make a plan now for how you will ensure that your vote is counted. If you plan to vote by mail, read the instructions on your ballot and follow them to the letter. My name is Ian Milheiser. You can find me on Twitter at at iMilheiser. This show was produced by Jackson Bierfeld. It was edited by Albert Ventura. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson. And this show is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Visit vox.com slash podcast to find more of our shows. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.